Glad to see John Isaac's family with us today. We're glad you're here, and we want you to know how much we love your dad. New Life Church is a better place because John Isaacs is, was here. And we're going to celebrate his life on Friday and Saturday, and so we welcome you guys to join us in that, and I have a lot more to say about that. But I want to say before, I'm going to be like that preacher, before I preach, I want to say something. Um, and, you, you know, John... A lot of people who didn't know him very well maybe didn't know all the things that he was involved in. But John carried a mantle of intercession for this church. And here's the deal. When when one of our saints goes on and becomes one of the saints triumphant, uh, not just one of the saints quick. You know, there's the saints quick, that's us, and there's the saints triumphant. When they become one of the saints triumphant, one of us got to pick up the mantle. So I need somebody here in our fellowship, to pick up the mantle of intercession for this church that he carried. There, there was an anointing there. There was a power. Anybody who ever prayed with him knows what I'm talking about, right? If you ever, I mean, he, he, here's John, gentle, sweet, kind. And when he started praying, you better look out. And I believe that, that God always raises up what a church needs. And I know that God is raising up someone who will pick up that mantle. And follow in the example that he led. Well, early in the 1990s, there was a film that came out. And, and please don't go watch the movie because I saw it on TV, edited for television. And there might be something bad in it. But um, it, it was the movie Grand Canyon. And in the movie, there was a story about a guy who was a wealthy attorney. Uh, I think he had been at a L.A. Lakers game. And he's driving in his very expensive car. And he wants to get around traffic coming out. And he goes through kind of a rough part of town. And his car dies. It just kind of comes to a stop. And it's kind of a tough part of town, and some guys that were kind of rough fellows see him, and they come up to the car, and it looks like they're, you know, you can tell they're not up for anything good. They're up to nefarious sort of things, and they're going to kind of beat him up, take his money, take whatever he has. But he had Tom to make a phone call to call the, a truck driver to come out, a tow truck to come, and the tow truck driver pulls up right as about the time these guys are going to attack him and take his stuff. And the tow truck driver pulls up the guys over to the side, and he's played by Danny Glover. And Danny Glover says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way the world's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. That dude is supposed to be able to wait for his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. And intuitively, we know that's true, right? Things aren't the way they should be. We have this gnawing on the inside of us, this haunting feeling that things are not the way they should be. I mean, we're talking about, you know, our, our brother John Isaac's going on to be with the Lord. Die. We, we have a sense that's not right. It doesn't feel, I've served here 25 years in pastoral ministry, and over the course of those years, I've done more than 100 funerals, and every single one of them, every single time, it didn't feel right. You might say, you, you haven't got used to it yet? No, I haven't gotten used to it, because death is an intruder into God's good creation. Death is an enemy. Here's my question, where does that feeling come from? That, that, that feeling, that why do every single one of us, whether you're a believer or not, maybe you're here and you say, well, I'm not a believer, but even you, you know deep down inside, something isn't right in our world. And if it isn't right, what is right? 
I mean, we all feel it. If, if the world is not the way it's supposed to be, then how's it supposed to be? See, the world, the, the story that the world will tell you is, is that we are the product of just impersonal forces. Some atoms ran into each other. There was this big bang, and through just a random course of action, this little small sun in a corner of the universe, which had these planets going around, about the third one from the sun, had the, the, the statistical improbability of being ripe for life, and then just randomly life came through biological evolution, random mutations. There was no, no mind, no intelligence. It was just an accident of natural selection that we came to be, and now we have consciousness and love and society, and, and that's the story they tell. And if that's true, then why do we have these feelings that there's a right and a wrong? I mean, why do you get upset if someone cuts you in line at Kroger? I mean, we've all had that experience, right? Not long ago, we, Marlene and I were at Kroger, and, uh, you know, we, and, and I made a rookie mistake, as I sometimes do. I'm not a rookie. I don't know why I do this. But we walked in. She said, we're just going to get a couple things. <laughs> rookie mistake. So I didn't get a cart. Well, she got a couple things, and I got a couple things. And then she said, I got to go to the bathroom. So then I'm holding all these things. And, you know, it's social distancing, so you're trying to stay six feet behind the person in front of you. And, and so there's several of us in line. You know, we're going to check out. And a lady comes in with her cart, comes right in front of us, and, get, and cuts right in line. And I'm, I'm thinking maybe she didn't see us. You know, you're sick. You know, before COVID, you know, everybody was close. You could tell who was in line. But, you know, there's six feet. Maybe she didn't see us. The lady behind me goes, oh, excuse me, ma'am. The line's back here. And she goes, I'm in a hurry. And, 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 you know, and I've got, like, 12th, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I had 47 things in my arms. And I'm like, but I'm not in a hurry. Now, here's what's interesting. She didn't say, there's no rule that says you shouldn't cut in line. That wasn't the argument she made. She said, the rule doesn't apply to me because I have an excuse. But she knew the rule applied. She felt guilty for cutting in line, and she had to tell us why that wasn't wrong. See, we all feel and feel strongly that you shouldn't cut people in line. We all feel, and we feel strongly that racial injustice is wrong. I mean, it's Black History Month, and, and every year at Black History Month, I read another book to kind of catch myself up on the story of my brothers and sisters and, 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 and their story. And, and invariably, every time I'm reading, I'm thinking, this isn't right. And we all feel that. We know that injustice is wrong. We know that any injustice is wrong. Cancer is wrong. Self-trafficking, sex trafficking is wrong. Child abuse is wrong. Torture is wrong. Death is wrong. Where does that come from? A couple of years ago, a young person came out of our youth group who met with me and said, you know, I don't even think I believe in God anymore. I said, really, why is that? And they, and they said, it's, it's the problem of evil. There's just way too much evil. There's suffering in the world. If there was a good God, there wouldn't be so much bad. And I said, wow, you know, I, 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 I'm upset about the evil in the world too. But if you're right, and there is no God, and if you're right, and we're just the product of a random atoms running into each other, then where does your moral outrage come from? Why are you upset about child abuse? Because this was the thing that had upset this person deeply, was child abuse, and this was evil. How can you even call it evil? If it's all on accident, if it's just atoms running into each other. And then I said, in some ways, your rage against the injustice in the world is actually a clue. It's actually a clue that there is a God and something's wrong with our world. 
We started a series of messages last week called This Is Our Story, and we were telling the story of, of, of the Christianity, and we said Christianity is not just moralistic and therapeutic. The, the, Christianity doesn't exist just to get you to do better and feel better about yourself. It is a grand narrative. It's an overarching story that explains our existence. It gives us answers to life's most important questions, questions like this. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Who are we? Where are we going? Questions of origin, purpose, identity, destiny. These are the deepest questions of human existence, and every single one of us need answers to those questions to find meaning in life. And that's what the Christian story provides. The great story tells us that the reason you and I have this haunting feeling that something isn't right in the world is that it isn't. The world that you and I live in is not the world as it was originally created to be. Something has gone dreadfully wrong. So to understand that, I want you to look at the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. The title of this message is The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly with Apologies to Clint Eastwood. Okay, Genesis 1 to 3. If you have your Bibles, I would flip open to that. We're going to look at a number of scriptures as we look at these three chapters to tell the story. First, the good. The good is the triune God in creation. Right from the beginning, verse 1, we're going to see the goodness of God, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you just read that without any other revelation, you think that God is just a solitary being apart from anything else. But we learn in the rest of Scripture that while there is one God, he is in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This is talking about the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, that is without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. Colossians 1 verse 16, for by him, again talking about Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So we've got the Father, Genesis 1-1 in creation. We've got Jesus, John 1-1, Colossians 1-16. And then if you look at the second verse of Genesis 1, now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So there you have the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all involved in creation. Now, why is that a big deal? Why do we have to start there? You have to start there. Because, listen, in our world, there's a philosophy called naturalism, and it's pervasive. It's a worldview that's all over the place, and it's a philosophy that says all that exists is the physical world of matter and energy. That's it. And it teaches, naturalism teaches that ultimate reality, and ultimate reality is just that reality upon which all other reality is built, right? Ultimate reality is blind matter. Okay, this is what naturalism teaches. Ultimate reality is blind matter. And love comes from matter. The, the love you feel, the relationships you feel, that comes, it, the, it all came from blind matter. That's what naturalism wants you to believe. The Bible, by contrast, teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, which says that ultimate reality, that is the reality upon which everything else is built, is not blind matter, but eternal loving relationship. And matter comes from love. 
Out of the love of the Trinity, God creates. This is very important because it's going to change how you read the rest of the story and how you live your life today. Now, the first thing you see about this God in the Bible when you read Genesis 1 is that he has no rivals. We sang that song, You Have No Rivals. I get fired up in that line of that song. I almost came up on the stage. I was so excited. I didn't want to usurp, you know, the worship team was leading and everything, but I was so excited. You have no That's what you learn in Genesis 1. He alone is God. There's no other God above him or beside him. He alone reigns. And, and, and what Moses, who, who we believe to be the author of Genesis, is, is, is doing in Genesis is he's deliberately taking on pagan creation myths and he's calling them out by name. In fact, he's using terms in Hebrew that directly or indirectly refer to the other so-called gods in ancient Near Eastern creation myths. There were a number of creation myths in the ancient Near East. And all of them included a battle between the gods for supremacy. It was like a battle between alpha dogs. And the material world was seen as a result of this warfare. Okay, so let me give you some examples. So like in the Babylonian myth, which is called the Enuma Elish, um, in the Babylonian myth, there's a Babylonian god named Marduk. Okay, not to be confused with Marmaduke, (laughs) who was a really big dog in a cartoon strip, Okay. This is Marduk. He created heaven and earth when he battled the ocean goddess named the deep. Sound familiar? Genesis 1, the spirit of God's hovering over the deep, right? And, 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 and what's happening is Moses is deliberately talking about that because in the Babylonian story, Marduk fights the deep, or Tiamat is her name, and they have this battle back and forth, and, and the way they fight, it's weird, the way they fight is uh, uh, Marduk blows this wind into Tiamat, or the deep, and it makes her stomach really big. Then he shoots an arrow, and it splits her in half, and she dies, and her carcass becomes the earth. And that's the Babylonian story. Now, you compare that to Genesis, and in Genesis, Yahweh doesn't battle the deep. Yahweh made the deep. There's no battle here. Or take the Canaanite myth, for example. In the Canaanite myth, there's a storm god who controlled lightning and rain and fertility, and his name was Baal or Baal, depending on where you're from. And, and, and he fought the sea god, who was the god of chaos, again a reference in Genesis, and, and, and that name was Yam, and, and the word Yam in Hebrew happens a lot of times in Isaiah, several times in the Old Testament, where, where the writers of the Old Testament are saying God is greater than any other would-be god. And in the story, Baal then becomes king by defeating Yam. He wasn't king before, but he became after the fight. Yahweh in Genesis didn't fight anybody to be king. He always was in charge. Or take the Egyptian myth where the earth wasn't even really created. If you read Egyptian myths, the earth was, it developed through successive births of various gods. And the god Amun, who was the wind, get this now, in the Egyptian myth, was brooding over the face of the primal waters. That's interesting. And Geb was the lord of the watery abyss. And so what Geb did was lifted this primal hill out of the watery abyss. And there was a god named Amon-Ra who emerged from an egg that was sitting on the, on, the, on the island. And when the egg cracked open, it was the form of a goose that Amon-Ra came out. And he started flying and honking <laughs> and created the world. I can't make this stuff up. I'm telling you, this was what they believed. You compare that to the book of Genesis and you don't see a God flying around like a goose honking. You see someone with unparalleled power. 
or take the Greek myth where chaos was often represented as the oldest of the gods, chaos, and the first being to exist. You see what's happening in Genesis 1? Moses is relating to his context. Genesis is a missional book. Moses is taking pieces of what they believe, the deep, the abyss, chaos, and he's showing them that the one true living God is greater than all of that. He is sovereign. He rules. He reigns. He made everything, thus owns everything. So the the first thing you see is his unparalleled power. And let me just kind of stop here and apply this to you today. Whatever situation you're in today, you need to know this, that you do not serve a God who is weak and anemic and who had to put on a battle in order to create the world. No, you serve the one who created everything and whose power knows no limits. That's who you serve. So the triune God, not forced by any other God, not in battle with any other being, not struggling with any other power, creates the world, and he nails it. Okay? Laces them up and nails it. I mean, there's a poetic flow. You just read Genesis 1. There's this poetic flow. Let there be light, and there was light. And then, you know, God looks at it, and he goes, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. And, and, and you see the wild goodness. If you just read Genesis, if you only had Genesis 1 as revelation about who God is, what would you think about God? You would think he's a good God, he does good things, and he's in a good mood. If, if that's all you had was Genesis 1, that's what you would think about this God. I mean, he's, he's doing good things. You get to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And I see their Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the, in, in traditional Jewish interpretation, that's just the plural of majesty. But as, as Christians, we see the Trinity at work here. Let, make, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right there... At the beginning, you see this lofty place in creation that humanity has. You see, before there was original sin, there was original glory. And we are made in the image of God. As male and and female together reflect the image of God. And later in the story, we're going to learn, this is why you treat people well. No matter who they are or where they come from. This, this is why every single human being has inestimable value. Unsurpassable worth. Why? Because they are made in the image of God. You have never met a human being that wasn't made in the image of God. Verse 28. And God blessed them. Okay, stop right there. This hit me, uh, for, you know. I've been studying the Bible for a long time, and for whatever, every single week, something new hits me that I hadn't thought of before. This is the first thing God does after he creates human beings. And what was it? He blessed them. Why? Because it is God's nature to bless. I I know some of you got a picture of God, and, and, and for whatever reason, maybe it's how your dad treated you, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's trauma you've been through. Some of you have a picture of God that he's mad at you, he's angry, and he's just waiting and happy for you to screw up so he can smack you. Like he takes some pleasure in that. And that is not the picture you get in Genesis 1. In, in, in Genesis 1, here is a God, he creates everything, he says, good. Oh, it's, and you get after he creates you, man, he says, it's very good. And he blessed them. 
And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion, the older translations say. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Over every living thing that moves on the ground. And then you get to the end of chapter 1. And that's when God says it's very good. And then chapter 2 rewinds a little bit. It's like movies. Have you ever seen a movie where you see a scene and then it says six months earlier. Right? And it rewinds. That's what Genesis 2 does. And it gives you the details of the creation of Adam and Eve. And Adam is formed out of the dust of the ground. And God breathes in him the breath of life. Which is this very intimate picture. You see in Hebrew, breath and wind and spirit are all the same word. And so what's happening there? The spirit of God is coming. And the spirit is making Adam come alive. Because wherever the spirit is, things come alive. It's just who he is. It's what he does. He, he brings things to life. And in verse 15 of chapter 2, this is kind of a side note here, but the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Just kind of side note here, work is not the result of the fall. Painful toil is. We find the curse in just a little bit, but work is not. And some of us may need to re-examine our whole idea of work because, and, and if I just stay with the text, let me just stay with the text, at least here, God designed men for work, to work. Matt Chandler is really good at this, he, he, writing about this. He says, there is nothing in the world more dangerous than a bored man. There's, I had way more women say amen to that than men. And, <laughs> And the reason is, look, we were built, we were designed to bring order, to be fruitful. And when we men aren't doing that, invariably, invariably, we turn to things that are destructive. So work is a good thing. We were designed for that, and and we should engage that and see the glory and the joy in in work. And then you have, right after that, this amazing story. There's no helper suitable for Adam, and so God creates Eve, puts him to sleep, takes his rib out, creates Eve, then brings her to him. Verse 23, and the NIV rather benignly translates it. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's kind of a benign translation there because the Hebrew is an exclamation, okay? It's, it, it's poetry. I like Kenneth, transla- Kenneth Taylor's translation of that. It goes something like this. Wow! Look at her! She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. See, you see everything else in, in creation, God, you know, Adam's going pigeon, dove, serpent, my own, <laughs> And, then, I mean, he wakes up, and I don't want to be inappropriate here, okay, but this is in the Bible. I'm just, nobody get upset. He wakes up, and there's a naked woman there. And there's nothing sinful in this. And he just is like, oh, my goodness. And, and it's pure. And there's joy. And then verse 25 says, the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, here's what I want you to see. Very important. The creation in its original state was in a perfect state of shalom. 
Now, the word shalom often gets translated as peace in our English translations, but if you read the Old Testament prophets, you will hear them prophesying that God is going to bring shalom, and in that is included things like this, harmony, balance, universal flourishing, justice, righteousness, tranquility, prosperity, wholeness, delight. It's a rich, shalom is a rich state of affairs where things are as they should be. And when you get to the end of Genesis 2, all of creation and the first couple are enjoying shalom. This is good. But now we get to the bad. And this, I promise, won't be as long. I wanted to spend more time on the good than the bad. But here's the bad. In chapter 2, God gives Adam one rule. One! It's like Adam. You had one job, bro. You're like a kicker in football. You had one job. And it's not even heavy-handed. I mean, this isn't, God isn't being heavy-handed. He's not being controlling. One, here's the universe, take it out for a spin, one rule. And it's not even hard to understand. This isn't a hard rule to understand. You know, it's not like he said, I want you to go love everybody. There's a million ways to obey or disobey that, right? Just go love. But he, don't eat from this tree. (laughs) It's not hard to know if you did it or you didn't do it. Don't eat for this one tree. Now, now, some people really question this. They have a real issue with this. And they say, well, I don't, God's not being a good father here. Um, and, and you see in the literature, uh, people who bring up, and they always bring up this illustration. If I say to my kids, hey, kids, we're going to go out and you guys play and have a good time, but I'm going to leave this loaded gun. I'm going to put a magazine in it. I'm going to chamber around. I'm going to leave it on the kitchen table. Got this loaded gun. Now, you can play in the refrigerator, in the garage. You know, just don't play with this gun. And then you leave. If something bad happens, aren't you a bad father? Why would God do that? Well, there's lots of ideas there, but I think this is what's happening, and this is not original with me, but I think it's the best way to understand it, and it's this. The tree is there to weave into us from day one that obedience to God brings joy. That's why it's there. Submission to God is good, and it's necessary for shalom. That's why the tree is there, to say, hey, hey, obey me, and this is the way you're going to have shalom. This is, this is going to be the context for human flourishing. And then you get to chapter 3, and this serpent comes in and begins to talk. Did God really say? You have to read Genesis 3 with the serpent like Ka from Jungle Book. Did God really say? Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what he's doing? He's questioning the heart of God. God's holding out on you. God doesn't want the best for you. You can't trust his heart. Communion with God is not enough, Eve. You, Eve, are not enough. And every single time that you and I have sinned, we did it because we weren't trusting the heart of God. If you go back far enough, if you go to the base, at the bottom, we weren't trusting God's heart. We thought we had a better way. God was holding out on us. Communion with God is not enough. Listen. God isn't against sin because he's some cosmic killjoy that doesn't want you to have fun and be happy, okay? 
I mean, you already saw his nature in, in chapter 1 is to bless. God isn't holding out on you. God is against sin because it doesn't work. He's not a, don't take from that that he's like this cosmic pragmatist, and if it works, then it's right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God created the whole universe, and he knows how it works. And he's against sin because he doesn't want you to destroy shalom. He's a father who wants the best for you. And you probably know the story. She takes the fruit of the tree. We often say the apple, but it doesn't actually say the apple. It says the fruit of the tree. And and, and then she eats it. And just so we don't misunderstand, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate it. What the heck is Adam doing here? What's he doing? I mean, his wife is being tempted by the serpent. Right, and he's right there. There's the serpent. What's he doing? Eve, I named that pigeon. I totally, I nailed it. I named it. It's a pigeon, Eve. Passive, not protecting, not caring for her heart, a danger that all of us men can fall into since Adam. And that is why, you guys, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Adam was responsible for sin and death entering the world. And here's what happens. In that moment of sin, Adam and Eve together, the cosmos is fractured. And shalom is lost. I mean, they had been naked and unashamed. They had been walking with God in the cool of the garden. They had been in perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with each other. And now it's all lost. And immediately, they experience shame. They experience fear. They go and hide. We've been hiding ever since, afraid to be known for who we really are. Afraid that others will find out that we aren't what we're projecting out there. Fear that people will know the real us, and if they know the real us, they won't love us. And then you get the first example of something in the history of the world that we will see the rest of history, especially in politics, something called blame shifting. And Adam says, when God says, what what have you done? Adam says, it was the woman you gave me. And the picture we often have here is that he's just blaming Eve, you know, like, look, I was working in the garden. I don't know. I, I don't know what's for dinner. I just came home. She handed me the fruit. I just, I don't know. It was her. But actually, actually, that's kind of the, the, the story that most, it's actually worse than that because he says, the woman you gave me. It's not my fault, God. It's on you. Then Eve says, well, it was the serpent. And nobody wants to take responsibility. And in that moment, a curse comes upon the serpent, the woman, the man, and even the ground. In fact, we learn later on in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation was subjected to frustration and is now in bondage to decay. Why? Because shalom has been lost. And in verse 19, it says, By the sweat, this is God speaking, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And the reign of death 
begins. And they are expelled from the garden. Why do we have this gnawing sense that things aren't the way they should be? Because they aren't. Shalom has been lost and we, our whole lives, we have been haunted by the idea of Eden. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says we have eternity set in our hearts. We have this gnawing sense in our gut that the idea that paradise has been lost and we've been trying to get back there ever since. It's the good, the triune God in creation who brings shalom. The bad is the fall of humanity. And here's the ugly, how we try to recover humanity, Eden. See, Adam and Eve, you know, what did they do? They tried to cover themselves. They tried to hide. They tried to blame shift in order to fix them or justify themselves. We do the same things today. There's different wells, different sources of life that we try to get life from, that we try to justify ourselves. We try to fix ourselves. Let me give them to you really quickly. First of all, we go to ourselves. We, we try to get back to Eden by saying something like this. We just need a better version of ourselves, and we'll solve the problem. You know, I can save myself. Just, I just need to work harder, eat right, work out, study. It, it, but here's the deal. Even the perfect version of yourself can't save yourself. Even the, if it was the perfect version of me, which would be six-pack abs and cash, like falling out of my pockets. <laughs> Marlene's like, hey, can we try that version of you? Because we, we, we've never had that version of you. I if we could just give it a shot, maybe. No. Again, if I can quote Matt Chandler a second time in the same message, he's really good on this. He says, you know what? No one has lied to you more than you. Nobody. There's not even a close second. Nobody's lied to you more than you. Nobody's let you down more than you. And yet, simultaneously, you will applaud your own sovereignty. I stink at life, but I'd be a good God. You know, there's, there's, I was reading about this this, this weekend. There's, there's this um, um, condition called anorexia nervosa where um, people see themselves as bigger than they are. It's, 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 it's not just physiological, it's psychological and and, and, and they'll look in the mirror, and, and they might be wasting away. They may be bones and skin and bones, but they see themselves as overweight. You know what I think a lot of us have when it comes to ourselves? We have a spiritual anorexia nervosa. We look in the mirror, and we think we're bigger than we are. Because the truth is we'll never redeem ourselves. We'll never fix ourselves. We'll never save ourselves. That's the first place we look to ourselves. The, other, the second place we look to to kind of justify ourselves is others. And this is huge in our culture right now. Uh, just have the right people. If I just have the right people in my life, I'll have shalom. If I have the right husband or the right wife or the right kids, they will complete me. They will fix me. They will fill up my emptiness. And our culture preys on this. You guys. There is a romanticism in our culture that is poisonous. Because no one else can be everything you need. You know why? They're not God. It's not your wife's job to make you happy. It's not your husband's job to make you happy. They're not God. 
And that's putting a weight on them that they can never bear. And you'll never be at shalom if that's what you're looking to. And sometimes we don't go to ourselves or to others. We go to the world. We, we just, we say, okay, here's the problem. Here's, okay, I'm not at shalom. I don't have this, I don't have peace. I don't have tranquility. Okay, but I just need new stuff. So, so if we just get newer, bigger, better, faster, the new stuff makes us what we do retail therapy. Because you feel better if you got new stuff. I mean, you know, you know I, I lease a, a car, and so our lease, lease was coming up to a close, and, a, you know, the dealership called and said, hey, we'll get you out of your lease early and roll you into a brand-new car, same price. It was $2 a month more. $2. I'm thinking, brand-new car, $2? No-brainer. I get in the new car. It was just Monday, just Monday, this past Monday. I get in my new car. I'm driving home feeling instantly better about being me. I'm driving. I had a silver car before. Now it's black. I won't tell you what the first song I listened to in it was. Yes, I will. It was back in black. That's what I did because I was back in black. And then I went to worship songs right after that, just so you know. Then it was worship. Thank you. Here's the deal. That was Monday. It's Sunday. I'm wishing I would have got the bigger engine. It gets better gas mileage, but I really, I like faster cars. I do. I don't know. Now i got to wait three years. What, what, am, what am I saying? It, it, everything you own is transient. And at the end of the day, let me just tell you, everything you have, you're just a steward of it. One day it's going to be somebody else's. Clothes, cars, houses. One day, somebody else is going to be living in that house you're living in. I mean, if we wait long enough. See, the idea of just getting more and better of what we already have, that's the answer. That's going to make this gnawing sense of us, in us that things are not right. That's going to make it all. That's crazy. And then the last thing, you know, we lean, lean to is not just that we go to ourselves or others or, or even that we go to um, the world. It's that we go to, are you ready for this one? Religion. And here I'm using the word religion with a very particular definition of trying to do things for God in order to get justification from God. It's like trying to earn our salvation by obeying God. I'm going to obey you. Why? So that you will now forgive me. And and we try to manipulate God. And and here's the thing. It doesn't work. Because you can never be good enough. You see, in some other religions and, and in some other faiths, the founder came and said something like this. I am going to show you the way to God or the way to nirvana or enlightenment or whatever it is. Jesus didn't come and say, I'm going to show you the way to God. Jesus said, I am the way. So none of our ways to get back to Eden work. So what do we do? We'll come back next week and I'll take No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I, like, really? That's kind of a bummer. Okay, just briefly. You get a hint of it in chapter 3, verse 15. And here's what God said. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
at the moment of greatest darkness when it seems like paradise is lost and a curse has come over all the earth and all of creation when it seems like all is lost there's no hope we're going to live east of Eden shalom is gone forever God promises that one is coming we find out later it's God himself to crush the work of the serpent And Messiah has come, and he will atone for sin, and he will conquer death, and he will conquer the grave, and he will heal, and he will redeem, and he will make new. And there's coming a day when there's going to be a new Eden. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and there will be shalom again. That day is coming. And as we walk through the story of redemption in these few weeks, we're going to get there. But here's what's fascinating to me as we close the service today. Here's what's fascinating. You don't have to wait until then for redemption and renewal and to begin to see new creation happen in our lives, it can begin now. You know why? Because Messiah has already come. And the kingdom of God is, while there is an element of the kingdom that's not yet, there's also an element that's already. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. And shalom is being restored.